Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and I'm the host of the Equip Project podcast. Each week, I'm joined by Jim Crooks. Jim used to work in the IT industry, but now serves in various Christian ministries. This episode is going to be a little different for us, Jim, because usually we're thinking of young Christians trying to make sense of their faith in the modern world. Yeah, we usually spend our time tackling the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity, so our main target audience is uh, young Christian adults. We want to equip them to live in a society that regards Christianity with suspicion, hence the name. This episode, however, has a slightly different focus, because we're going to think about Christianity from the perspective of someone who isn't a Christian. Maybe someone who has been sent a link to this podcast by a Christian friend. Or maybe the coronavirus pandemic has triggered some thoughts about the whole God question, if you like. In a culture like ours, that sort of conversation is a little bit unusual, isn't it? It's certainly not commonplace. In the days when I had a real job, most of my best friends were English atheists. My colleagues knew I was a Christian. I never forced my views on them, but sometimes late in the evening, after we'd eaten a meal together, the conversation occasionally became more reflective. So you're right that it's a bit unusual for non-Christians to engage in a dialogue about faith, but it sometimes happens, because Christianity's perspective on the human condition is worthy of respect. Jim, in our previous episodes, we've tackled questions like, how can I know the Bible is true, or how can God be a triunity, or how can Jesus be both man and God, or how does the death of Jesus achieve anything? People interested in those sort of questions can dig through our archives, but in this current climate, I think it might be better to start by giving non-Christian listeners an insight into what it actually feels like to have a Christian faith. So to begin with, I want to read an ancient Hebrew poem. It's, it's a psalm. If anyone wants to Google it and read it before they go to sleep tonight, it's Psalm 121. It's one of a series of psalms called the Song of Ascents. Pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem had a long journey to make, and it was sometimes dangerous. And on the night before they walked the final miles to the city, they would settle down for the night by a campfire, and they would sing the words of this psalm. And it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in, from this time forth and forevermore. That is one of my favourite parts of the Bible. There's such a sense of peace and rest that flows from it. Aggressive atheists like Professor Richard Dawkins seem to resent the idea of God. They prefer to think that they're alone in the universe. But the Christian knows that she is not alone. She knows that her life is guarded and guided by a a kind, benevolent God. He watches over her like a father guarding a sleeping child. And that's such an attractive idea, Jim. But looking at Christianity from the outside, the idea of knowing and trusting God is a difficult thing to grasp. So I guess a question then on that, how does someone get to know God? In Christian thought, we can't make the first move towards God. He has already moved by revealing himself to humanity. The Bible explains how God has moved in history, revealing the truth about himself and about all of life. 
The climax of that long process is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Christians say that Jesus was no mere man. He was the Son of God. So 2,000 years ago, the claim is that God walked among us as an ordinary man. That's right. But the Bible doesn't start with Jesus. It first sets out what we might call the Christian worldview. So it examines really deep questions like, what actually is a human being? Why does life contain this strange mix of goodness and evil? Is the human story heading anywhere? What will happen to me when I die? And once the Bible has defined the problem space, if you like, then Christ comes to solve the basic problems which beset us all. We got into this part of the conversation because I asked you how someone could know God. And it seems like the first part of the answer is that we become convinced that the Christian worldview is correct, that the Bible's analysis of the human condition is so compelling that it must actually be right. Yes, all of us have to make sense of the lives we live. Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is hardly worth living. So a Christian is someone who has become convinced by the coherence and the explanatory power of the Christian worldview. The Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Becoming convinced that the Christian worldview is correct will require a really fundamental rethink about all our assumptions in life. For some people, it will be a catastrophic revolution in their minds. But becoming convinced of the Christian worldview isn't the same thing as knowing God, is it, Jim? So how does someone actually get to that point? Well, critics of Christianity sometimes say that people like you and me, Ollie, just accept the Bible as divine revelation. We somehow accept that idea as a brute fact. But that's not true. In our first three episodes of this podcast, I argued that, as a minimum, the gospel records give us access to an accurate record of what Jesus Christ said and did. So anyone can encounter Jesus Christ. And this is the second step in the journey to knowing God. Because when we encounter Jesus Christ, we discover that he cannot be explained using normal categories of thought. There's just something about him. His words and his actions reveal a moral grandeur that speaks of a deeper reality than the material world. And so for every one of us, knowledge of God begins by recognizing the uniqueness of Christ. When we see Christ's moral light, we instinctively recognize that which is ultimately real and valuable. And that recognition leads to the conclusion that Jesus is telling the truth about himself. He is the son of the living God. So we can gain knowledge of God because Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, but I'm still trying to dig away a little bit at this question of how someone can know and trust God. So, Jim, like those pilgrims who sang Psalm 121, even if I become convinced of the Christian worldview, even if I recognize Jesus as the Son of God, surely all I have at that point is knowledge about God. I still can't claim to know him as a person the way you and I know each other. That's correct. The real question here is, how does someone gain first-person subjective knowledge of God? It's not enough to give intellectual assent to a set of beliefs or even to know stuff about God's personal character. The question is, how do I enjoy fellowship with God? We live in a culture that tells us that human beings are just physical and rational beings. But the Bible has a much bigger view of us than that. It says that we were designed to live as spiritual and moral beings. So it begins with a picture of human beings in fellowship with God. They shared their lives with him. They talked and they listened to him. 
But something terrible happened at the beginning of the human story. We fell out of fellowship with God. The spiritual part of our lives died, and so he became distant to us. So a Christian is someone whose spiritual life has been restored. That's why evangelicals talk about being born again, because God makes us spiritually alive again. And there's an even stranger idea in Christian thought. Not only do I become spiritually alive when I become a Christian, but God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in my personality. And it is that spiritual operation, if you like, which allows me to gain subjective first-person knowledge of God. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Possibly the most famous psalm in the whole Bible is Psalm number 23. It begins with the words, the Lord is my shepherd. For the Christian, those words aren't a mere metaphor. They really know that reality, the protective presence of God in a personal, intimate way. Psalm 23 brings the, the things we've been talking about, the various dimensions of knowing God together, brilliantly, because it goes on to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In that single sentence, we get the confidence of someone whose worldview has an answer to death, and we also get the comfort of someone who knows God in a personal, intimate way. So let's apply that to some poor person on a ventilator in an intensive care unit. They are facing death. Worse, their family can't even sit around their deathbed, so they feel alone. But Psalm 23 answers both the death question and the problem of existential loneliness. The valley of the shadow of death leads to our eternal home in Christian thought. And we never make that journey alone. The Lord our shepherd walks beside us through the valley. We need to be a little bit careful here, Jim, because some Christians are accused of trying to frighten people by talking about death. Well, maybe some Christians do set out to frighten people. They shouldn't, of course, because fear never really changes anyone's heart. But I sometimes think people can use that accusation to deflect any conversation about mortality. Now, I say this in all gentleness. We need to talk about death. Our TV screens are full of pictures of temporary mortuaries being built around the, the UK. We are living in the valley of the shadow of death at the moment. And so the age-old question erupts into our minds. What will happen to me after I die? Yeah, it's absolutely massive. I, I don't think there's ever been a time that I can remember, Jim, where death has been so much in the forefront of, of our minds. In Christian thought, death is a transition from this world to the next one. Our personal identity isn't lost. Eventually, Christian believers will receive this new glorified body and live in fellowship with God and with each other on a new earth. So while we may be nervous about the process of dying, the claim is that Christians don't need to have fear of death itself. Yes, for the Christian believer, the prospect of meeting God after we die isn't remotely frightening. In fact, we look forward to it with a real sense of anticipation. That's because we know him already. Uh, we trust in his revealed goodness with all our hearts. So one of Christianity's greatest blessings is its hope, a hope that can transcend even our darkest fears. I think you've painted a really positive and comforting picture of the Christian faith, Jim. At a superficial level, we might wonder why everyone doesn't immediately become a Christian. And yet we live in a society that regards Christianity with suspicion, even sometimes a little hostility. Why do you think that is? I said just now that we live in a society that regards human beings as merely physical and rational beings. But the Bible teaches us that human beings are also moral and spiritual creatures. 
And the stumbling block for many people is that word moral. Now, I would ask any non-Christians listening to us now to be patient for a few moments because the point we're addressing opens the door to the sheer beauty of the Christian gospel. We are going to see hope and love in their full colour if we can summon up the courage to address the morality question. Yeah, Gemma, I think I think you're right on that. The Christian view of morality is is massively disliked today. It's actually quite fashionable for, for young people to say they're spiritual, but the Christian view of morality is viewed as narrow-minded, and, and some would even go so far as to say bigoted. It's not that people today are disinterested in morality. The problem is that our culture encourages people to invent their own morality, a sort of personalized ethics that matches their chosen identity. So morality has become a fashion statement. Now, if Christianity is true, we don't get to do that. It is God who decrees what is good and what is evil. He decides what is valuable and what is worthless. Now, his morals aren't arbitrary rules chosen at random. They reflect his essential character. So we love our neighbours because God is love. We tell the truth because God cannot lie. We are faithful to our marriage partners because God is faithful. You said a minute ago that something terrible happened at the start of the human story. Our first parents chose to break God's boundaries. They used their freedom to go their own way. And it was that decision which has led to all the hurt and pain in our world, all the betrayal, the greed, the malice, the abuse of the innocent, the oppression and mistreatment of the poor by the powerful. Our sin has wrecked the world and our own lives. Deep down, I think we all know that to be true. And so we feel guilty before God. And it is guilt which drives us further and further away from God. That is the deepest problem that the human race faces. I think non-Christians might easily accept that feelings of guilt drive us away from God. That seems clear from a psychological perspective. But the real question is about the validity of those guilty feelings. So is our guilt before God real? Is he justified in calling us to account for our moral actions? Of course he is. If Christianity is true, then I am a moral being with the freedom to perform moral good or evil. We all know that we have misused our freedom to cause others real hurt and pain in their lives. And often that pain gets passed on to innocent third parties. It's as if every time we sin, we inject a little bit of poison into the human race. So the truth is, each of us has caused real damage to precious and valuable people. And so one day we shall stand before God and be called to account for our actions. There will be a final judgment. And it's that part of the Christian gospel which is probably the most offensive to the modern mind. It's caused many non-Christians to reject the whole idea of an afterlife altogether. For example, the feminist author Jermaine Greer famously said that after she died, she would be nothing but compost, really good compost. Well, those are brave words. If she is right, then both of us will enter oblivion when we die. I will never find out that I was wrong. But if I am right then she will face the final judgment before a righteous God. The hard-nosed question raised by that choice is obvious. It's Pascal's wager. (laughs) Which of us is in the better position? It seems to me much more rational for us to deal with the question of guilt rather than try to laugh it off or pretend it doesn't exist. You promised non-Christian listeners a minute or so ago that if they stuck with this discussion about morality, we would eventually open the door to the moral beauty of the gospel. Yes, The Bible positions the death of Christ on the cross as the hinge of history. It's the moment when the deepest problems that beset us are dealt with. We see the Son of God take our place. 
He takes responsibility for all the hurt and pain we have caused, the sheer damage we have done to ourselves and the world around us, and he pays the moral debt that we have each incurred so that God can offer us a principled, free forgiveness. Romans chapter 5 begins with these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is such a lovely thought, to have peace with God, particularly at this time of economic and political uncertainty. Over the years, Ollie, I have listened to quite a a number of Chinese students tell me about how they came to faith in Christ. Nearly all of them came from an atheist background. But after weeks and months of learning about Christianity, asking hard questions, reading the Bible with their friends, they repented of their sin and asked God to forgive them on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. And here's a really curious thing. In nearly every case, when I ask them how they now feel, I get the same reaction. They put their hand to their heart. Sometimes they even strike their chest and they say, I have peace in my heart. It's lovely to see how the Christian gospel can transform someone like that. Instead of running away from God because deep down we feel guilty, a newborn Christian can know peace and rest in his heart. As a child of God, he knows God as his father, Christ as his divine companion. He has opened the door of his heart to the Spirit of God. And so he lives in fellowship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So the beauty of the gospel is seen in how alienated and lost people can come home to God, can be reconciled to him. As Jesus famously said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. The gospel also addresses the issue you raised earlier, Jim, and that's the problem of death. Just a few days ago, we celebrated the Easter story when, after Jesus died, God raised him from the dead. As a result of the resurrection, those who accept God's forgiveness have a living hope, an eternal hope, that death is not the end. Because of Easter Sunday, death is the gardener and we are the seed. Our old bodies may get buried in the ground, but we will be raised up in the newness of life. That's right. The cross of Christ deals both with sin and death. And the really beautiful point is that it reveals what God thinks of you. You are loved. He regards you as precious, one of a kind. And this kind, generous, forgiving God loves you. And so he came to save you. You can be redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And at that moment, you will be spiritually reborn, allowing you to know God personally in your daily life. And not just your daily life here. You get to have fellowship with God for all eternity. So your worldview will be transformed. Instead of being afraid of meeting God, your heart will be full of love for him. Instead of being afraid of the future, your heart will be infused with hope. So the Christian gospel is a morally beautiful thing. It is about love and hope. We've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. For some people, a whole set of new and difficult ideas have been talked about. So what should the next steps be for someone who wants to do a bit of quiet investigation into Christianity for themselves? Well, I guess everyone's journey will be slightly different, but three general things can easily be done. And the first is, address your doubts. So, if you want to examine the rationality of the gospel, then I suggest you listen to the following three episodes of this podcast, episodes 10, 7 and 13, and listen to them in that order. If you struggle with the inspiration and accuracy of the Bible, then you should listen to the first three episodes. Now, of course, there are lots of other resources around online, but given that you've found your way to this little corner of the internet, you may as well start here. By far the most important step is to start reading the Bible for yourself. Maybe just read Psalm 121 tonight before you sleep. 
or Psalm 103. Then you might think about reading a chapter from Luke's Gospel each morning on your own. If you want to stretch your brain, read the first eight chapters of Romans. Or you may love the inspiring words of the second half of Isaiah, starting at chapter 40. The third and final thing you can do is to try an experiment in prayer. Now, I'm I'm going to do something here, Ollie, I've never done before in one of these podcasts, and that is to pray on your behalf. So any non-Christian listening to me now may wish to say a quiet amen when I finish. God, I am not yet sure what I believe. Part of me thinks that these words are just bouncing off the ceiling. But I promise to go on a journey in search of the truth. I will be open to the consequences in my life if Jesus' teaching is true. I promise to be honest with you about my sin as I stand in the light of your character. I am prepared to face the potentially shattering consequences of accepting the Christian worldview. And I am prepared for the fact that if I am to become a Christian, I will have to acknowledge Jesus as the eternal Son of God. So if you are real, reveal yourself to me in the days and weeks that lie ahead. If there is love and hope out there, I want to find it. Give me the spiritual sight I need to see the truth. Thanks to every single one of you for joining us on this episode. We really hope that some of these discussions have been interesting to you. If you have any questions that that you'd like to ask us off the back of this, please don't hesitate to email us at theequipproject.gmail.com or send us a message via Instagram. We'd really love to hear from you all. That's it from us for now, but do join us next week for episode 25 of the Equip Project podcast.